yeah, we have things in place about responsible service of alcohol, and so we should. You know, and yes, we do look after each other because you know some, especially um, smaller venues, um, there's a, a camaraderie among the patrons. You know, no one's there to be a dickhead. Everyone's there to have fun, and you know, and meet new people. You know, um, I mean, meeting new people is another thing. I mean, look at the you know kids today. I mean. Everyone's just staring, not just kids, everyone is just staring at their phone mm. the whole time. You know, there could be a peacock in the tree above them and they would not even know. I heard recently that, um, and this just, this just upset me, really, that the people who feel the lonely, loneliest are 18 to 23-year-olds. That is so sad. That is incredibly sad. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone, and welcome to Real People where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Driller Jet Armstrong, ex-police officer, DJ, artist, founder of the Dorbus Art Movement and co-owner of popular nightclub Sugar. We caught up in Driller's eclectic Bridgewater home to discuss his life, art, music and perspectives on culture, government and conservatism. We discussed the critical role of the nighttime economy and frustrations around government interventions such as lockout laws. Driller discusses how critical it is for us to address mistreatment of our Indigenous culture and to ensure we are better aware of Aboriginal history and art and have difficult conversations and, most importantly, put necessary actions in place. We discuss Dorbism and the role art plays in Driller's life. A few tips around having a successful life, being cool and much, much more. Uh, let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Thank you so much for joining us today, Driller. I've got a question I start off all these interviews with, but I'm going to ask one question before. So what I've liked about these interviews, like you hear about people doing podcasts and they'll have this really carefully kind of manicured studio that will be kind of separate. And we've had a couple of interviews in the, in the office, but we've, the interviews we've enjoyed the most would just rock up to a pub or a cafe and sometimes we've had music so loud that you're kind of worried it's not going to actually work. We've had a few interviews in people's houses and we're certainly in, uh, in your house today. It's, it's a very eclectic, <laughs> eclectic house. So thank you so much for having, having us here. Um, You've said you've been here since about the 80s? When did, when did you first come here? So this place was built in 1947. Yeah. Um, and you're in Bridgewater, so... Yeah. In Bridgewater, yeah. So I bought the place for 77000 back in the day. <laughs> um, the, the people that I bought it from um, made this house by hand. They shifted um, 90 tonne of soil from the hill using a shovel and a wheelbarrow. Then using a hand-turned concrete mixer, they made over 2,400 concrete blocks. Wow. 
Then they built the house using those concrete blocks. In 1989, they won a million dollars in the lottery. So they wanted, and they were quite old by then. Yeah, they were yeah. in their 80s, and they wanted the house to go to a battler, someone like they, like them. And so they sold it to me. But the house has. Did they did they like advertise to sell it, or did it? Yeah, I, yeah. I came up to have a look. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, it was it was perfect, really. Yeah. So how were you a battler back then? Well, I wasn't earning uh, very much money at all, and I still don't, <laughs> but I managed to scrape by. Yeah. So, so, and you look around, it's just this, um, yeah, I mean, I'm sitting in a room with a whole bunch of records behind me and art all over the walls and a bit of sort of um, music DJing equipment. You've got You said you've got some um, owls out the back and yeah. nice, beautiful Japanese-looking-esque garden at the front. So how do you kind of, like, what... Like, what, what what compels somebody to, to build a house that I'd say is a pretty cool-looking house? You sort of said it was a bit weird but when, when we first got here. But. Well, um, I didn't build it. Um, oh, but in terms of the, 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 I guess, the aesthetic. The aesthetics within. inside, yeah. Um, well, it's very different to when I did buy it. Yeah. Um, but largely um, the art is stuff I've purchased over the years or swapped there's some um, there's some antiques from my in-laws who downsized recently to a, an apartment in the city, and they were a collector of antique clocks. So we've been given yeah. some beautiful old clocks, um, but it's kind of grown organically. Mm. Um, you know, we we bought some wallpaper as you can these days. You know, on the internet, nineteen um, thirties wallpaper. Um, and we had to get an expert to come and put it up because it didn't even have glue on the back. Yeah. It was so old. And it was just splitting and, you know, yeah. but he was so p- patient putting it back together and you can't see where it tore or anything. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it just kind of all joined together again once it was dry. It was an amazing process. Um, but with the leftover blocks, they built um, what was my studio out the back there, um, which was just... Um, like a shed, really, built, yeah, yeah. built of concrete blocks. And I added um, an extension on top of that. Yeah. Um, I designed it and um, was an owner-builder. Um, and my friend uh, drew up the plans and we got them through council eventually. And um, so now I've got a beautiful studio out the back as well that I m- use mainly for art, yeah. for making my, my, my daubest work. Yeah, okay, and... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. We'll, we'll come back to a lot of lot of that um, as we go through the interview. But the question I always start with is, what were you like as a kid? What were you like when you were about eight? Let's go back in the time machine. Um, well, I'd been in Australia for three years. Um, from the UK. Yeah, from yeah. the UK. Um, so I spent the first. Um, First couple of years in Australia fighting people because I spoke with a funny accent. (laughs) (laughs) So the English story of migration is kind of the untold story because we're white, we speak English. Um, So, you know, there was never really that kind of... um, Well, I guess it was different if you were Greek or Italian, but 
because you kind of stood out. But there was this still kind of bullying that went on back then to anybody that came from overseas, even if you came from Mother England. That's right. You look the same. Why don't you talk the same? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Can you can you remember the UK? Have you got can, any memories that stand out? Look, good or bad? Um, I think my memories are made up memories from stories that yeah, okay. my um, family have told me. Um, the one story that does stand out to me is um, my my school class was building a balsa wood canoe, um, and I was the last person to leave the class that day. And I put my chair up. And I turned around and put my foot straight through the bottom of the balsa wood canoe. Yeah. So I ran home and I was completely freaked out about... I didn't know whether to tell anybody, so I didn't tell anyone. But that night at dinner, my dad announced that I didn't have to go to school in England again because mm. we were all moving to Australia the following week. Uh, <laughs> yeah, more than so I don't know whether I was shipped out as a convict for a petty crime <laughs> or whether it was actually legit they paid for you know, They really did want a, an engineer in Australia, which I suspect they did. Yeah. And, and, and so your parents moved here because yeah, of, like, work opportunities. Ten-pound poms, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Would, we, would you – often I'm kind of fascinated with people who move from one country to the next, and it's very, it's very brave. I often, I, I yeah. look. My father died last year, yeah. and you know, I had to do the eulogy, and um, in that eulogy, I did reflect on what a brave man my dad was, because he really did make a bold move in 1964 to uproot um, his family, an 18-month-old girl, my brother. Martin, who's two years younger than me, he was five and I was seven. It's a brave move to, when you don't know a soul on the, mm. other, you know, on the other side of the planet to uproot your family from everything you've, you've always known in search of a better life. It, it's kind of like pioneering in a way. You mm. know? It's, yeah, it was, and I don't know if we always acknowledge that. Of how what it actually takes. I, I kind of sometimes I hear conversations about how do we stop the young people leaving, but yeah. I think it's but in not, a way when they go, it's like it's. But they're not dragging crazy. up their whole family. No, it's, you know what I mean. They're yeah, not, okay. This is you know that's a lot of baggage. I mean, it's easier yeah, when yeah. you're by yourself to when move it's, anywhere. When it's you a young want. person, it's different. To yeah, them, so. absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, as a young person, it's you know you're free to do whatever you want when you but when you've got a lot of responsibilities, it's a huge gamble. Yeah. That you don't even know what you're going into, you know. No. In a way, I guess, you, um, if you kind of reflect back, you, your parents must have felt like, I guess, in many such similar situations of we, like, we we kind of feel like this will be, yeah, we're creating new, new opportunities, new land, we maybe feel like we need to do this. Well, but, we're, uh, but, but probably a bit shit scared about what, what the future might hold. Look, my, my dad took to Australia like a duck to water. Is that right, yeah. But my mother... Um, she had to go back a couple of times, not not splitting up or anything, but just to go back and see her relatives, her yeah, brothers okay. and sisters. Um, because, you know, she did take a while to get over that pull back home, mm. that pull to go home. Yeah. I mean, she loved Dad, you know, obviously. Um, I mean, they were together, they were married for 65 or years. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think about it, no one does that anymore. No. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, extremely brave move and, um, you know, I, 
I have nothing but admiration f- for Dad for, for 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 taking that chance. Yeah, and you said your dad fit into Australia like a duck to water. What does that mean? Look, you know, um, within a year of being here, he started following Port Adelaide Football Club and taking us to the footy and everything. So, yeah. I mean, that... You and know, you still do, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I still do to this day. I mean, it's like most Port supporters, we don't support, we're indoctrinated. <laughs> 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 um, I mean, to not support them in a family of Port supporters, I don't know what that would be like. Yeah. You know, you'd probably be exonerated, you know. Uh, not exonerated, expelled. <laughs> But, um, uh, yeah, he, you know, Dad had a real larrikin heart. It's probably where I got my, it's probably where I get yeah. my wild streak yeah. from. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, Aussies love a larrikin, you know. My dad was always the life of the so party. So seemed to fit in. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dad really did embrace, you know, like he loved barbecues and he loved, you know, um, he loved driving us to, you know, all around Australia on school holidays, yeah, you know. Yeah. Like, just jump in the car and drive to Queensland. <laughs> 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 you know? Did he stop in between? <laughs> yeah, I, we, I, we did, we did yeah. stop in between. Yeah, we stopped in between. It was a family trip that we did and, and Dad just said, no, no, we're going to drive until we can get to the other end. And I don't think we can. We had family friends who were close to Queensland. We're going, this is too far. <laughs> it's a long, long it. way. It is, it is. Uh, especially when you've got three kids in the car. Exactly. You know, it can be that's pretty right. boring. Yeah, yeah. But that, that's just the norm, isn't it? You just deal with what your parents say yeah. you have to do. Yeah. Um, what were you like as a that went like as a kid? Were you studious? Were you like you talked about being a bit rebellious at, in, in your genes on reflection? But what what were you like? Did you like school? Did you like sport? Um, look, yeah, I played I played sport. Um, I was a all right footballer. Yeah. Um, I liked the outdoors. I liked riding my bike. I had a lot of friends. I had a happy childhood. Um, I remember I had a happy childhood probably because um, it was guilt-free. My dad was completely irreligious. Yeah. And so am I. Um, And I think, you know, when I announced my dad aged, it might have been eight or nine, that I didn't want to go to um, Sunday school anymore. He said, you don't have to. Yeah, and I, and I thought, why didn't you tell me that at the start? Yeah. <laughs> that used to be a normal thing, didn't it? It the was kids just a normal went to thing. Sunday school. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I just didn't like it. Yeah, you know, yeah. something. Yeah, something wasn't right about so it. As soon as you asked, he said, "I don't go." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I said, "I didn't want to go." He said, "You don't have to." <laughs> Did you know what like that that um question you get asked as you start to get older as a child of what you want to be when you grow up? Did, well, I was always drawing. Yeah. You know, I was always the one that had to do the poster, for instance, when mum returned from England that we yeah. would, you know, okay. <laughs> welcome home, you know. <laughs> so that always fell to me. Um, and a couple of the um, of my friends at school were also um, into drawing and art. Um, one of them, Nick Pace, is um, quite an extraordinary artist in England. Um, mm. Now he paints... Uh, the natural world, birds, and incredible, yeah. amazing yeah. work. Another one, um, Chris Harriet uh, went on to form the band Scandal. Yeah, okay. And he had a, they had a couple of hit records. Um, 
with another friend, Peter Watson, who played guitar in that band. I, Nick's the only one that I, you know, have been in touch with, and that's only really since the, you know, um, the birth of Facebook, really, that I... Reconnected. ...managed yeah. to track him down. Yeah, c- connected with him. Yeah. Track him down. It sounds like I stalked him. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like that. But, um, I, yeah... But it's funny, isn't it, when you have someone you were, like, I don't say high school friends with or school friends with and they reconnect and go, do you remember? And you go, well, yeah, you actually do, don't you? Yeah. When, when they were close. Look, Nick used to um, have a lot of um, snakes and goannas, you know. Yeah. Um, and what kid doesn't want to hang out with someone that has <laughs> snakes and goannas? Yeah. <laughs> did you, like, in terms of a, like, did, like, so did you want to have a career as an artist? No, like? I had no idea, yeah. really no idea. I had really no idea to the point um, where, you know, I was, I was so bad at school. You know, I would light up cigarettes in class, tell the teachers to fuck off. Yeah. Not wear the school uniform, you know. Because you didn't see the point or you didn't like what they were teaching or the teachers weren't great or... Why do you think? It was just inside you. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I knew that I could make everybody laugh. Yeah. You know, and I like that that feeling of making people laugh. The, the, the teachers weren't laughing, but, the, but a lot of my classmates <laughs> were laughing as well. Um, so, so that was kind of, yeah. you know. Intoxicating. Intoxicating yeah, in a way, yeah. yeah. Um, but then, you know, it came, when it came to the, the notion of what am I going to do when I leave school, I really had no idea. To the point where um, I, I snuck into the drive-in in the boot of a, a friend's brother's car to see A Clockwork Orange. And I was with three quite rebellious friends. And I, I don't know if you've seen the film, but during the movie, yeah. um, his droogs like his gang, yeah. end up joining the cops. And uh, my friends and I looked at each other and went, what a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> In the most evil way. <laughs> and so we went along We went along, and we all got in. Yeah. Yeah. And like the sergeant at recruiting looked at my report card and said, you know, your report card's pretty bad. And I just looked him square in the eye and just bullshitted. I said... Sarge, that's because all my life I've wanted to be a cop. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he virtually leapt over the desk to hug me. <laughs> Welcome to the fold. So you, you, know. all, you all joined? Or? Yeah, we all joined. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, it's yeah. Fun, so, isn't it? And, you know, and I tell you, three and a half years in the police academy, yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir, was a bloody good, you know, um, lesson for me to keep my big mouth shut, to learn. Is that right? Yeah, yeah it really was, yeah. yeah. Because I was, you know, I was a smart ass at school. So it was a great lesson in self-discipline, which... So why is that important? Why is that self-discipline important? Because as an artist, you don't really have to do anything. Yeah. You know, you could... But I am compelled to make work. Part of that is because of the process of making the work. Part of it is, you know, finishing something that you start, which I'm a big believer in. And... um. And the other part is, yeah, getting up, working, creating your own work, you know, which to me is 
far more interesting than being told what to do mm. by a boss. You know, I create everything that earns me money myself. Yeah. And you have, you have to have that self-discipline to be able to produce that. Yeah, absolutely yeah. you do. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I would work way more than a person on a nine-to-five job, yeah. you know. I mean, some days I work, you know, 16 hours a day. Mm. Um, but it's not doing anything that I don't really love. I love music. Sometimes, the, you know, the club stuff annoys me. Um, just the petty stuff, you know. I hate the sweating the small stuff. Yeah. Um, well, the stuff you, <laughs> you wish didn't have to be yeah, dealt with. Yeah. Just, just how long, long did you spend at the p- police? So um, three and a half years in the police academy and, and basically seven years. Yeah, okay. Um, That's a fair while. Yeah, yeah. It's a fair while. And it had good bits and bad bits, I'm assuming. What? Oh, you know, like everything, you know, um, you see some horrible things, some great things happen that you are a part of, you know, whether that's, you know, saving someone. I saved someone from drowning one time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, by the time I, by the time 10 years came around, um, I think unconsciously I was ready to move on. So you, you didn't leave going, I've got to get out of this place. No, I'm no, totally no. frustrated. It sounded no. like it was just a very no, not natural kind of transition into well, next. Well, it was, it wasn't quite natural. It wasn't natural. It was more <laughs> synthetic. Yeah. Um, a friend gave me an acid trip mm-hmm. and that was the catalyst that made me want to leave. It, it, it was a, um, it was a shining moment on that acid trip where I had a revelation Yeah, and I quit a week later. I, I threw away a 10 year career. That you prior to had been quite comfortable with. Yeah. Largely. I, yeah, I you know I'd reached a point in that career where you know I was quite happy doing what I was doing. I, you know I didn't have to. I was a senior man in the patrol car, so I wasn't being told what to do nonstop. Um, and you know once you once you um, you arrive at work and you and you have your morning parade, you get in that car and you're just with one other person just driving around, and it can be great fun. Mm. It can really be great fun. You know, uh, the things that we used to get up to in the 70s, um, you, would be, you just would not be able to do that these mm. days. I mean, we used to have barbecues on night shift, you know, where you... There's a TV show on it, isn't there? Well, there is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think there is already one, isn't there? What's it called? Um, Life on Mars. <laughs> <Is> that... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so what was your revelation? Um, well... It was to get out of the police force. That was basically it. Yeah. Any why or to do well, something um, else? I, or? You know, because my bedroom was very strange. Um, hanging on um, a mannequin's finger was my police uniform and that was it stood out as um, the thing that really did not fit the rest of the room, yeah. which was, you know... Um, it had like forty odd, you know, flying ducks on one wall. Yeah. You know, it had, um, you know, 
um, a fishnet across the ceiling with plastic lobsters in it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. You know, it had a sunglasses rack with about 60 pairs of, yeah. you know, weird sunnies on it. And a bit like the sort of, the, was it Sesame Street or whatever, and they go, which one of these things doesn't belong? <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> the police uniform doesn't belong. Exactly yeah. right. And, you know, and on the, um, on the acid trip, it, it became extremely apparent that, yeah. yeah, it was time to move on. Had you been side hustling for one of a, a, a bit more of a modern kind of term, but on art and no. music or anything no. like that during the time? So, so art and other than having a bit more of an eclectic kind of living space? No, that. no, look, I, um, I was living with a graphic designer at the time, um, Stefan Kahn, who now lives in Sydney, and he told me, he announced to me one day that he was going to see a clairvoyant. And I said, oh, what are you going to go see a witch for? It's all bullshit, you know? <laughs> anyway, so he went to see her. And when he came back, I said, okay, what did, what did she say? And he told me what she said. And I said, okay, I'm going to go and, and see her. I'm not even going to tell her I know you. I'm just going to, you know, ring up out of the blue, completely cold, and just go and see her. And I bet she tells me the same shit she told you. Anyway, she told me that I would be leaving my job that year. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> what will I do? She goes, you'll find a work of love through a friend. Um, okay. Is this before the acid trip or? This, is, this was before. Yeah, okay. Right, this okay, was before. Yeah. And she said, um, she said, you're also going overseas this year. And I'm like, what with? I don't have any money. <laughs> anyway, um, she also said some really weird things, quite specific. One in particular was that I would meet, when I was overseas, I would meet a Scorpio girl who would follow me back to Australia, but I wouldn't marry her. I mean, that's quite specific. It is. So I took the acid trip, had a revelation. I quit the police force with 10 and a half years service. I got long service leave. I used the money to travel overseas. When I came back, I started working at the Austral Hotel. I started making posters for the bands that I was booking, which someone saw a poster and said, have you got any more artwork at home? I said, yeah. I went home and did some, put him in his exhibition. Mine was the first sold simply because someone said to him, whose work is the least likely to sell? (laughs) (laughs) And he kindly offered my name. Um, So it was kind of, you know, it was was like a a foretold prophecy in a way. Yeah, wow, okay. I I mean, and while I was overseas, I met a French girl called Sylvie, who was a Scorpio girl. She showed me around Paris. We had a mad love affair. She followed me... I, I, you know, came back to Australia. She came over. I'd met another girl at that stage. I was living in a house with the both of them. Yeah. Um, I felt like um, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. And, um, and th- then she got, you know, a bit jealous and moved out and eventually moved back to Paris. I'm friends with her on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Um, reconnected. Um, but... I mean, that's, that actually happened. Yeah. That's very specific. And you can't plan that, can you? You can't plan that. <laughs> you can't plan that. But you um, must have had a, a, a passion for music and a passion for Always art. had a passion for music. So it was, in, it was it, inside you. It just almost yeah. like after the police, it sort of almost, it, the seeds sort of started to grow. Look, my mates would um, always come back to my bedroom to listen to music Yeah. Um, as a teenager. We'd go to each other's houses and sit in the, each other's bedroom listening to, you know, Led Zeppelin and, you know, Black Sabbath and Lou Reed and Brian Ferry and that kind of stuff in the 70s. Um, and the same thing happened in the police academy. Everybody would come to my room to listen to tunes. Yeah. 
And that's, that was just a personal interest, love, joy of I just music. Lo- I just loved music. Yeah. Um, and, you know, after I left the police force and was um, working at the Austral, making posters and then doing art, um, having exhibitions, um, it kind of led to my DJing because um, I I made a logo for a guy who had a, a place called the Cotton Club in Hindley Street and he wanted to come over to look at the art, the finished art. So I said, yeah, come over. So he came over and he walked into the house, which was my studio bedroom, and said, who's all these records? And I said, mine, why? And he said, why don't you come and play them in the club? And I went, nah. And he said, I'll pay you. And that kind of dawned on me that I could actually make money out of, you know, wow, my music. And so that's how I started doing it. And I taught myself how to beat mix and, you know, the rest, as they say. So when was that? What sort of? That was 1985. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there we go. I think I went to see you or listen to you a few times around that kind of point. <laughs> there we go. Um, I think the Asta you played at. Oh, the Asta, yeah. Like from a, like that was, I think that was more 89. Yeah, yeah, um, So what, what is it about music? Like, what, what, what do you love about music? Do you Obviously know, that's become a big part of your life, isn't it, really? Because you've got a club a now. Huge, and yeah, it's a huge part of my life. Why does music matter? Because music um, comes to you uh, as a message from the universe often. And I think you experience it more um, when you're a teenager and the things that you're going through as a teenager. Like if you have a breakup with your girlfriend, you know, back then you'd jump in the car and turn the radio on yeah, yeah. and it would be singing your story mm. at you. you it was personalised to you. Even though the song, you know, was obviously not about you, mm. but it seemed like it was talking about because you're so you. vain, you think the song's about you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about you and your situation, yeah. you know. And I, I'm sure many people have felt, you know, mm. and you know, m- music is great when you're sad. It's great when you're happy. You know, it's just a constant friend, really. Mm. And is it? Does it? Do you, like? Um I guess you, you're, it sounds like you're always exploring new music. You, you're, obviously, your life, you, you are. Like you're yeah. looking at new music and you always. follow the trends and what's... Yeah. Um, I, so you must almost have that kind of ability to be able to go... I, I, I'm, my kind of assumption is that most people from the age of, say, 15 to 25 is when they kind of build up their kind of musical repertoire and you talk to them when they're 10 years, like 20 years later, oh, that music, today's music's crap. When I was, uh, that, that period of time was when the music was good. But you must be able to morph and evolve and have that kind of ability to go... Look, one thing um, that's changed is that um, you used to be able to tell when someone stopped being cool because... Like a musician. You'd only... No, anybody. Anybody, yeah. Because you'd just go to their music collection and look at their vinyl or their cassettes, as it was, or their CDs even, and you could see where it ended... Okay. Where they where they started buying, um, you know, stuff that was kind of 
generic lounge music. You know, they stopped keeping up with the latest music. Mm. And you could see at that point was when they stopped being cool. Yeah. But it's kind of hard these days because of what's happened to music, you know, with Spotify and, you know, streaming. And you can virtually have anything that you want musically. Any song you want, you can get. Um, whereas, you know, not everybody could get certain certain tunes back back then. No. Especially it had when, to be introduced, didn't it? Or yeah, especially give you a mixtape, or they give you yeah, share like, it all. Like you'd you'd hear you'd you know you'd hear a DJ play it, and then you'd have to go and find it. You know, you have to go and ask them what the title is. You know, or you know, sneak a look and mm. and then go and track it down. But it's much much harder to track down a record back then. I mean, there wasn't discogs. No, you know, a huge database of you know secondhand vinyl. No. You can't. You could. You couldn't shazam it back, back no, then. No, you could go to say Central Station and order it. Yeah. Try and order it. You know. Or I'm assuming people came and going. There's a song that sort of goes like this. Yeah. Or, or you know, you'd have to compete with one of the you know seven or eight other DJs in Adelaide. Yeah. You know, when when five copies arrived of a track that you really wanted, you have to be you have to be there that morning to get hold yeah. of it. You know, or or have it put aside for when it did arrive. Yeah. Um, so not everybody had the same music. Yeah. There must be something inside of you that and I, um, that you've got an appetite for new music. I'm assuming most people, even the young guys coming through now, are going to go, we've had, uh, we had dis- discussions and debates of what's good music, what's not so good music. But there's always office, been that, Jason. Yeah, there's yeah. always been good and bad. You know, yeah, okay. there's two kinds of music. There's good and bad. That's it. Yeah. Across every single yeah. genre, whether it's pop, Ir- irrespective of time irrespective and, yeah, uh, yeah. of whether it's pop or techno. You know, um, drum and bass. You know, yeah. there's some terrible drum and bass, but there's some amazing drum and bass. You know, um, and that applies across every single genre of music. Hmm. When did you go into being a a um I guess a club entrepreneur or a, owning your own business. So again, it was um, an opportunity through a friend. Um, he said, "Let's buy the old Q bar." Or I'm going to buy the old Q bar. Do you want to be one of the owners? And I said, "Yeah, all right." Um, was that a kind of immediate? Yep. Yeah, 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 it was. Because you, you it used was to that, go there and yeah, yeah, it was that immediate. Yeah, you know. Um, because you know, when because I've been working there as a DJ, you know, for quite a while as well, and other venues, and you know, when you're standing there with the headphones on, you know, waiting for the track, you know, you've already queued up the next track. You've got this little window of, yeah. of three or four minutes when you're kind of standing there looking around and seeing what's going on in the venue, and you kind of think to yourself, you know, when things happen, you kind of think, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, I would, yeah, or I do yeah. this differently. You know. So then, when the opportunity came to actually, you know. Um, to realise that kind of uh, vision or dream, you, um, you you have to take it. You know, there were back then there were seven owners, um, and 
like a Shakespearean tragedy, I've kind of assassinated four of them. (laughs) (laughs) And now now there's, there's, there's me... I have 55%. My son has 22 and a half. Yeah. And one of my best mates has 22 and a half as well. Yeah. So it's like a, yeah. it's like a, um, a benevolent dictatorship. Yeah. And now it's, now it's called Sugar, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, and so you're obviously finding, it's like any business, isn't it? Finding people that are aligned philosophically with how you run that, run that business and what you want that business to be. Is that, is that fair? You sort of see like... Sugar, obviously, sugar is a business because you, you. It's definitely a business, um, and that's the unfortunate. That's the downside of it, actually. If it was just a beautiful pastime, it would be amazing. <laughs> but um, I mean, I think we contribute so much to the city of Adelaide. Um, we're about to embark, um, and this is a, an exclusive. We're about to embark on um, doing live bands in the yeah, venue. Okay. Um, but for a very long time, we've been um, putting on the best international music producers and DJs on, on the planet. Yeah, you often fly people in from... We're known for that, and, yeah. on, almost on a weekly basis. Yeah. We have Shay Demir from Chicago playing next week. Yeah. You know, House Don, Yeah, you know. And is that from your networks and connections? And Yeah, uh, through other venues. Yeah. Um, so this weekend, um, my son and Eugene and Ben, the other partner, and I... Um, are flying to Melbourne for the Red Bull Music Weekend. Yeah. Um, Red Bull are flying three of us over. Yeah. Which will be interesting. We, we've never actually been away together, all three <laughs> of us. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I could go either way. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, so what, like, what role does, like, a nightclub like Sugar play in a culture? Like Adelaide, but or anywhere. Well, really. it plays what, a huge what, part yeah. in youth culture. Yeah, you know. Um, so tell me about it. what what's that sort of? I guess the the role that it plays and the purpose it plays, and and and, and why why that night night culture is so important. The culture that many people don't see because they're tucked up in bed. Well, <laughs> you know, people that say nothing good happens after midnight are the most boring people on the planet. Yeah, you know literally the most boring people because some very special things happen after midnight mm. just as just as they happen in the daytime mm. um and to marginalize the nighttime economy is to cut off your nose to spite mm. your face you know um is it closing that, you know yeah, closing yeah. down closing down um the nighttime economy disenfranchises youth in so many ways. And the people that do it, I bet that in their day, and I know for a fact in their day, mm. that they could attend venues all along Hindley Street, all along Rundle Street, at any time of the day or night, and it, you know, and it was vibrant. Um, and there, you know, there might have been one bouncer on every door, mm. and that was about it. Sometimes none. You just r- roll in, yeah. you know. Um, so I wish that, you know, that the police and the government would actually trust the people that they've employed, that they 
authorised to be security guards, to let them do their job and just look after the streets, let the security look after the venues, you know, and that will be a load off your mind, Hmm. you know. I'm I'm getting that sense from the discussion and just uh, that your sense is that government and police are getting more and more conservative over time. Absolutely, definitely. No doubt about that. Yeah. No doubt about that. They forget the joy they had when they were yeah, younger. Yeah, they? yeah, yeah. You know, and it's a form of child abuse, really. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm assuming that so that 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 nightlife is it's it's the connection, it's the rite of passage, it's the joy it brings, it's the it's the right it's, of it's passage. A, it's, a, it's the economic impact as yeah, well. Yeah. You talked about um, we're doing we started this on like ten thirty on a Friday, and we were sort of arranging sort of to, to do it. And you, you were you were working last night. You sort of had like, uh, finished up. You said 4am, but I'm sure it was after that, sort of by the time you finished up and you had the mm. World Solar Challenge um, yeah. come in and finish off there. So they're all there and they're spending money and they're celebrating. Exactly. And it's so, great, great yeah. night. Great night. Yeah, yeah. Great to be a part of it. Yeah. Great to see the, them on the dance floor. Yeah. That gives me joy, yeah. you know. Um, you know, but... But I wonder if there's sort of not that really did the discussion around the, the like economic impact of that nighttime culture... Do you think there's sort of that? Do you think there's sort of an, an understanding of that from a government perspective? That, that, well, you think that there, will, that you there would be. You would have thought that, you know, yeah. especially from a liberal government who are mm. all about business. Yeah, you know. But um, you know, the more, the longer I live, the little, the smaller the differences between the two major parties. Yeah. Are, okay. So, what, so what are the things that are being put on, in, in, I guess, in, imposed on you that that make it harder to run? A joy, a joy bringing business such as a nightclub. Um, definitely, lockout laws yeah. are a major impact. Can you explain the lockout laws and and what what they are, but sort of in a simple way? Well, it basically what... stops people from going where they want to. Yeah. So after after a certain, a certain time, time yeah. So then, yeah, yeah. yeah, you either stay in that venue. Is it after two a.m. After three a.m. Three a.m. Yeah. Okay. So um, you either stay in that venue because you can't go anywhere else anyway. Yeah. So. You're kind of stuck. Because it assumes if people are moving from one venue to the next venue, they'll yeah they'll be drunk and they'll have a fight. And is that is that is that, is that, what, <laughs> yeah. the, is that what they're thinking? I I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, these people have never probably been in a nightclub. Yeah. I don't I don't think they know what goes on in a nightclub. Yeah. But you know, let their imaginations run wild because you know, I bet the things that they think are going on are not going on. Mm. You know. People are getting on in nightclubs. People are having fun in nightclubs. People are dancing. What's the harm in that? You know, um, yeah, we have things in place about responsible service of alcohol, and so we should. Hmm. You know, and yes, we do look after each other because, you know, some, especially um, smaller venues, um, there's a, a camaraderie among the patrons. You know, no one's there to be a dickhead. Everyone's there to have fun and, you know, and meet new people, you know. Um, I mean, meeting new people is another thing. I mean, mm. look at the, you know, kids today. I mean, everyone's just staring, not just kids, everyone is just staring at their phone mm. the whole time. You know, there could be a peacock in the tree above them. They mm. would not mm. even know. <laughs> and there's lots of research that shows of getting out there and looking people in there. Eyes and, yeah. and I'm assuming dancing as well, yeah. um, and has psychological benefits because a lot of them are actually becoming disconnected and actually not not well, actually mixing with real people. So, I heard recently that, um, and this just 
this just upset me really. Uh, the the people who feel the lonely loneliest are eighteen to twenty three year olds. I know that's right. That is so sad. That is mm. incredibly sad. Mm-hmm. Do you think? Yeah, like. Um, I mean, you think it would be, you know, 90-year-olds. Yeah. Do you think that there are younger people in that kind of age group who are no longer going out, who have stopped, that maybe a couple of decades ago would have probably gone out and now they're not? Or do you think it's just, it's just the, the way out, in which the world... Yeah, no, going out has definitely changed. Yeah. I mean, um, when, I was, uh, um, when I was 21, I was out every single night. Every single night. Yeah. You know, I couldn't bear to stay home. I would rather be out. Drinking, yeah, chatting, yeah. dancing, yeah. you know, meeting people, having fun. Yeah. But it's become a very kind of weekend thing these days, you know. Although we do have a big Wednesday night at the, at the club, mm. which is unusual, yeah. you know. Um, it's definitely not the norm. It's Friday and Saturday night these days. Yeah. And what, like, do you, what do you think's changed among you? You obviously had different periods of time of, of young people coming through. What do you think's changed with – if I'm going to generalise, I say most people that would go out at night are probably younger or younger at heart at least. What do you think's changed culturally? Well, I'll tell you something that um, Josh Fanning said to me the other day from Merge magazine. Yeah. Josh said that, um, that culture has become about f- um, food and wine about eating and drinking, mm. and that's it. Um, which is sad. Mm. It's, you know, I mean, yeah, that's nice, but is that really culture? Mm. Is that, I mean, you know, putting, putting food on a plate is definitely an art, you know. Being a chef, you know, and creating is absolutely legit. But what about all the other f- things? What about music? What about visual art? What about performance art? You know, what about what about that side of things? You don't. Where do you read about that stuff, or where do you talk about it other than on mm. podcasts? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Do you think people's appetite for um, that broader cultural definition has declined? Are we becoming more? We talk about creativity and know, innovation, but do you feel like are, are people becoming more conservative, or, do, or, or we just is it just exposure or just opportunities that that aren't there as much? I, you know, I don't know. Don't know I just yeah. don't know. Yeah. Um, and I scratch my head over this often. What's happened? Mm. But I, I can't really. I, I can only think that. It might be the internet, you know. It There's might an be alternative, so you don't need to go out because you can. Yeah, it might can, be social media, you know. Um, but things have definitely changed somewhere along the line. Do you get like there's there's some research we've seen, and I'm not saying it's right or not, but this is at a global context of younger people are becoming more conservative. They are. Which is, probably yeah. wi- which is worrying because you're meant to start off quite rebellious and then you become more conservative as reality hits. Well, let's hope <laughs> that, it, that, 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 um, that whole process is, res- is yeah, reversed okay. and they're going to be crazy when so, they're... So you, so you would say from your observation of younger people that they are more... Like, 
it's a, it's, a, it's hard to generalise, but uh, as a generalisation, yeah, they are. In, in what, how does that manifest? Well, I mean, look, you know, look at the clothes they wear. Yeah, I mean, everybody wore much more outrageous clothing. Nobody, I mean, people wore clothing to stand out. Now mm. they wear it to fit in. Yeah, okay. You know, in the seventies, can you remember? I don't yeah, know if you remember right. the seventies, but people dressed wildly that's in exactly, the seventies. Yeah. You know, especially young people. Yeah. Um. And that's changed. Um, music taste has changed too. It's broader. And a lot of people listen to the same stuff. Yeah, okay. Um, so it's not broader and deeper, it's just broader. Yeah, it's broader and more commercial. It's broader and more commercial. Yeah, I think people's views are more conservative as well. As a society or as younger people? I think, um, well, people that grew up in, in the 70s are definitely more conservative now because they're the people that are running councils and governments, yeah, okay. you know, and they're not letting kids do what they did. So they were probably rebellious back in the 70s, yeah. but now they're, they're quite the opposite. That's right, yeah. yeah. And, I, you know... I mean, that's how you get the term young fogey, you know, it's that kind of (laughs) trickle down, you know. (laughs) What about attitudes to things like drugs and I guess alcohol as well? Have you seen change? Obviously, some of what you've been saying, you have seen changes, but what have you seen as the changes in kind of attitudes towards drugs? Oh, it's interesting. Um, I don't think... um, I don't think uh, people use drugs as much as they used to. Definitely not drugs like heroin, which was you know a big thing in Adelaide in the eighties. Mm. Um, you don't see that so much anymore. Of course, you know you've got the bogans on ice. Yeah, you know. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, that is a complete scourge of society. And mm-hmm. um, there was that kind of um, heroin epidemic in the 80s, but not like this, not across different um, sectors of the community, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, country towns that have been decimated by ice, you know, um, kids with, uh, kids in desperate situations, even, you know, kids in wealthy suburbs. Yeah. It just crosses over, doesn't it? It It's it's that escapism of escaping. It's just just across, across everything. So it's, it's kind of, you know, it's interesting to reflect on these things. I, you know, I, I, I may be completely wrong. I don't yeah. have the statistics. What, what about just attitudes to, to drugs? And there's been some talk in recent days in New South Wales about um, drug testing at music festivals and the likes. And well, that like, needs to happen. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, when the coroner comes out and says that this could be, this would be helpful, this would perhaps prevent kids overdosing I mean why wouldn't you try it if that's what 
the you know that's, mm. if that's what the recommendation is, why wouldn't you try it? Mm. You know, like no, I'm going to I'm going to value my own opinion because I'm so against drugs. Yeah, you know, even though I know nothing about them, probably she mm. knows nothing about mm. them. We're talking about Gladys Berejiklian, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean she she has her head in the sand, you know, and oh look, but she's just like so many other politicians these days. Where are our leaders? Mm. You know, they they tell you what they think you want to hear. They don't have a firm position and they don't stick by it. You know, they don't have a grand vision. No one has a grand vision, mm. you know. Well, they tend to be par- party politics where it's hard to find a leader that's very firm on what yeah. they're about. Yeah. In South Australia, we talk about Don Dunstan a lot. We keep on going back to that's right. To Don, so as where's Don? To Fifty years ago, and but where's Don? That's you know, right. where's 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 Don today? Mm. You know, there's no leader like that. Yeah. You know, the closest one that um, is probably Donald Trump, but at the other end of the extreme <laughs> right, scale. Uh, you know, that's right. That's scary. Yeah, but yeah. look, you know, um, you want your leaders to lead. Yeah. Um, not not to tell you what they think you want to hear. And stop playing safe. Mm. Be bold. You know. Have a vision. Think outside the square. Mm. I mean, you know, that you know, the government says, Oh, we have, you know, a f- half a billion dollar hole in our budget because the federal government took away some of our GST funding or whatever. And yet, you know, there are states in America making billions from medical marijuana and the legalisation of marijuana. Uh, Hello? You know, you could easily solve that debt problem or that funding gap Mm. in a heartbeat. You know, you could tax it, you you could control it, um, you could remove the, you know, remove the black market element the criminal element, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you could do research into the benefits of it, and there are many, many medical benefits. And I can tell you this: um, my ninety-year-old mother is taking CBD oil. Yeah, okay. She she has breast cancer. Mm. She's also doing chemo, but under chemo, her blood cancer count was always going up. It never ever went down until she started doing CBD oil. Since then, her blood count's gone from 1,400 to 200. Right. The fluid that she had on her lungs for five years is gone. Yeah. Her tumour has gone from four centimetres to two centimetres. And she no longer walks with a limp. Mm, okay. She's 90. She's mm. travelling to England next month to okay. my nephew's wedding. <laughs> she would there. never have been able to do that three months ago. Yeah, okay. So what's going on there, Jason? Is that, is that the pharmaceutical companies not wanting this to get out? Or we can't tell people that, you know, mm. that cannabis might, you know, help them, you know, might r- kill their cancer. Yeah. And, and South Australia's got a, a history. I think, I, I think we're different to the uh, Western Australia and, and um, the Eastern Seaboard. I think we're decrimin- marijuana's decriminalised or it's, it's something like that when you look at a map of where, where we're at. So it, it had, we have had different attitudes over time to... Well, ironically... To um, they've just legalised it in the ACT, 
where you can also get fireworks. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Where you can also get fireworks and, and go that's to, where all the politicians and, are. and go to porn, <laughs> right? And, and go to, and they have porn porn shops. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so go figure, yeah. you know. Do you th- I want I wonder if it's the politicians are perhaps more so nowadays than maybe what they used to be of. This is probably just a um, back, back in the day. It used to be better, kind of. I guess, sort of whinge to a certain point, but maybe are worried about not pleasing everybody. So we're kind of we're trying to have everybody yeah, but, on side before they do something, which but, is which is so hard. I mean, yeah. maybe in a, in a state like South Australia, or even a, a country like Australia, where it's a small population, you kind Look, of go, we have to get everybody on side, but that's never going to happen. This is why I believe in a in a um, in putting a really smart, free thinking individual. In charge, yeah. someone who can lead, and someone you know um, who has the authority to make decisions on behalf of everyone for the greater good, mm. and not for not for self interest, <laughs> not or for self interest groups or whatever. Yeah. You know, um, uh, you know <laughs> what? Like we're going to give equal rights to everybody, regardless of gender, sexual preference, skin color, whatever. Oh, but you know, we're with the church. Too bad, too bad. I'm doing it. It's done. Yeah. Have you ever gone into politics or thought about going into politics? Look, I um, <laughs> I kind of um had a brief flutter to be on the Adelaide City Council. Yeah. Um, at the last election, um, I'm not sure Adelaide was ready. I think you had posters saying it's timed. Yeah, yeah it was a great poster. It was a great. I think that changed the face of election posters forever. Yeah, five images of my head <laughs> all over town. Yeah, and they weren't ready for it, or yeah. they, what? What do you like? Uh, you know, um, it's funny though. You know, you can sort of you can people can say, "Oh, what do you believe in?" And I say, "Well, okay, I'll give you an example." Um, I said, "You know, cyclists shouldn't have to wear helmets in the city." Oh, what about the danger? But then the peak cycling body of Australia comes out and agrees with me the next day. You know, it does discourage people from riding a bike, especially women who mm. want the, you know, to go out with a hairdo, mm. you know, or a nice hat. It does discourage them from riding a bike in the city yeah. if they have to, you know, jam a helmet on. Yeah, you know? I'm, I'm sort of just... Need to get on to obviously your art and explore that a bit deeper. But just just before I move on to that point, we talk as a society about we want to be more, we've got to be more creative and innovative and entrepreneurial. But on the flip side, we're getting more and more rules being put in in place, mm, like mm. sort of rules about it could be things that maybe we should have for health reasons or otherwise. But lots of more rules being put in place, but we're wanting creativity. So. I guess as a, I don't know, a visitor or a sort of just even someone part of the community, does it? Do the rules give us an, uh, a different message to this kind of message about creativity? So do, do we sort of say we want creativity, but the reality is we're actually kind of wanting as a society or that the gov- government is imposing more and more rules on us. What, what do you kind of that, like how, how we kind of bring that to, to, to bed? Look, they treat us sense. like kids, you know. They treat us like... Like the person, you know, one kid's naughty in the class, so the whole class gets punished yeah. because he didn't own up. That's the, the, you know, that's basically it in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, and you know, one size fits all policies don't work. They just don't work. Mm. But do you, do you like, 
as a like I guess a yeah do, do, do the rules take away that do, do the rules actually make us as a society less willing to take risks yeah yeah absolutely yeah. they yeah. do of course yeah. yeah I mean even parents these days they're so fearful for their children's safety mm. because fear is such a great propaganda tool for governments and of all persuasions mm. you know that, you know, kids are scared to climb trees. Kids are not allowed to climb trees. Kids are not allowed to break bones, yeah. you know, which was also a rite of passage. That's right. You know, sign my cast. Yeah. <laughs> I had an interview with another um, guest, Steve Sammartino, early on, and he said when he was young he used to jump from, they used to jump from hay bale to hay bale and, or to climb up a cliff or whatever, and he said, oh, there's probably a whole bunch of kids that just, died at the bottom of the cliff that we never actually knew about. <laughs> but, but we kind of grew. But, it, but even he, like, people like that will say, well, we, we worry more about our kids now than what we used to. Yeah. Even, even the people that did have all those That's right, that did, in there, they did have all those freedoms. Yeah. You know, like we used, to, um, we used to go for walks in, you know, all day yeah. we'd, you know, on school holidays. We'd leave at like nine in the morning yeah. and we'd get home as the sun was going down. And you know. parents wouldn't, no, wouldn't know where no you one, were. No and, one would know where yeah. we were or what we were up to. But we were given that freedom, yeah. you know, to be able to do that. I can't. When I, you take that away, though, when you take away that kind of freedom or that, I guess, um, bubble wrap your your kids. What do you what do you see that that produces? Are you seeing kind of kids who are you know scared to take chances? Yeah. Okay. You know. Yeah. Your style of art is would you, would you call it dorbism? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. So. Um, so in 1989, um, I designed the Fringe Poster Competition. I won the Fringe Poster Competition with my design. Yeah. And that really kind of signalled the last of that period of work that I did from 85 to 1990, really. Um, and I stumbled on a new way of working, which was to start with somebody else's finished canvas, generally of the Australian landscape. And it was a really provocative thing to do back then. People got very upset with me for doing that. Because you were painting over somebody else's work. Yeah, especially other artists. (laughs) Especially the artists whose paintings I used. Yeah. Um, And everybody, you know, I was pilloried, marginalised... Um, over this, you know, I had Philip White, the wine writer, saying to me, don't you realise that, you know, because I used um, Charles Bannon's painting to paint a crop circle on top of his painting of the Olgas. Hmm. And I had Philip White shouting at me in the front bar of the Exeter Hotel saying, don't you realise Charles Bannon has cancer? (laughs) And I'm like, Philip, I didn't give him cancer by (laughs) painting over his painting, you know, painting on top of his painting. Um. You know, and arts organisations were not supportive and some commentators were downright rude, you know. He had bits in the media. It was in the media media. and everything. But um, a couple of years ago, uh, the CEO of Arts SA apologised for the stance that his organisation took back then because they were wrong. You know, there's a long history 
of this kind of work, mm. where people have touched on it as a way of working, including Duchamp's pencil moustache and goatee on Mona Lisa yeah, postcard, yeah. right? That was, a, that was a signal that this could be a way of working in the future. Um, but probably about five years ago, I came to the realisation that every time I see a painting of the Australian landscape done in the European tradition, gum tree painting, basically, what I'm being presented with is terra nullius. Yeah. Look at the empty landscape. There's no sign of any indigenous culture and you can own it. Yeah. You can buy this yeah. vision of the landscape where there's no Aborigines. Mm. That's terra nullius. Yeah. So using that as the site allows me to make commentary on this subject, including, um, including on the topic of reconciliation particularly, because um, it's my strong belief that people say, oh, these things are just symbolic, but symbols are really important. And they're especially important to indigenous people everywhere around the world. You know, it's a stroke of a pen to um, change the constitution. It doesn't really cost anything. Just change it. It's a stroke of a pen to change the date of Australia Day. Mm. You know, Australia Day has been many different dates. Mm -hmm. It's a stroke of the pen to remove the Queen as the head of state. It's a stroke of the pen and a graphic designer to change the flag. Yeah. These are all important steps that need to be taken before we can even set foot on the road to reconciliation. Mm. And my r most recent work talks to that directly about two cultures existing harmoniously on the same surface. So I kind of try to create a generic form of indigenous art that doesn't offend, that doesn't get tied to any group as though I'm trying to rip them off or, you know, anything like that. I mean, the fact that it's on someone else's painting of mm. the Australian landscape yeah. for a start is very unique. You know, if, is that, is, if that is the point, you know, that you're missing, how are you missing that, yeah. you know? Um, so I did this kind of generic indigenous imagery and it could be indigenous imagery from anywhere around the world, mainly from rock art paintings, but also dot paintings, um, large areas of, uh, brown or black just to, um, just to let the viewer see that there is this that there are these two cultures on this one surface yeah, okay. harmoniously together. And is it about, is it about stirring up conversation? Is it about, um, it's definitely about conversation, it's about conversation. It's, yeah. it's definitely about conversation and discussion. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, we need to discuss these things as a, as a nation. Yeah. These are, these are important discussions, you know, I mean, the fact that, um, indigenous, our indigenous, um, brothers and sisters still want to be our friend is incredible mm. considering everything that we've done to them or were that was done to them you know um the fact that they still want to hold hands with us and walk together to a new future is just amazing 
That's you, true forgiveness. Do you feel like the conversation has evolved, changed, I don't know, even worsened over the last decade or two? I would definitely like to see a lot more progress in this area. Yeah. You, know, a, you know, a voice to parliament, what's the problem with that? Mm. You know, why do you have a problem with that? I, you know, <laughs> I, it's just, it just leaves me nonplussed. Yeah. So, so doing things is not that hard. So, no. it's, 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 it's lots of conversation, but not actually kind of the. Yeah, and it doesn't cost any money. Yeah. You know, yeah. these things don't cost a lot of money. Mm. You know, in fact, they'll probably generate money. Yeah. You know, we don't, we don't know enough about our indigenous culture, white Australia I'm talking about. Mm. As I, you know, it's not widely known um, who the great artists are. You know, most people can't name a great Aboriginal artist no. other than maybe, you know, Albert Namajira, you know, who painted in the Western yeah. style. Yeah, yeah, that, that sort of the, the like, Aboriginal history is not. No, it's not taught. taught. Not taught. And it's like, certainly Aboriginal art history is not. Taught. Yeah. Art history is not taught. The true history of Australia is yeah. not taught. Mm. You know, like we need to really have these chats. You travel a fair bit. Um, do you have do you have favourite countries you go to? Or? Japan is my favourite country yeah. on earth. Do you have any kind of sense of how people say in Japan see Australia? You know, Japanese people are extremely refined. Yeah. You know. So, I mean, Australians have a long, long way to go in that area. Mm. You know, um, Australians don't mind their own business enough out in public. They feel like, you know, some of them feel that they have the right to comment about what you're wearing or, Mm. you know, your sexuality. Um, But that would never, ever happen in Japan. People are really respectful, mm. and that's one thing that's missing here. Respectful of each other, of each other, of each other. Yeah. Always respectful yeah. of each other, and always, always aware, socially aware of what to do mm. in that situation, whatever situation. They always know the right thing to do, and it's always putting the other person's comfort first, which is a great thing. Mm. Mm. Putting someone else's comfort before your own. Yeah, I think that's a isn't that the definition of a gentleman or a? Mm, well, I, it, I learned that from Blast from the Past. <laughs> well, they are definitely um, that. They are definitely that culture. You know, one um, I guess the one thing I guess I'm interested in is the way Australians see ourselves versus the way others see it, see us. So it, it, I guess it's that that idea whole idea of are we are we seen differently in other parts of the world so whatever that might be so when you have visitors come from overseas is there a a way in which australians generally not necessarily you but sort of just australians generally see themselves but that other people might see us differently Uh, uh, yeah i don't know because i'm not i mean i'm i i'm an australian but i am an immigrant australian and a, a large part of that kind of British is still in me. Um, I'm not your average Australian. So no matter how, how long you're here, you're still not necessarily... In a way, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in a way. What about attitudes towards our um, 
indigenous culture do you is there sort of perspectives from people who come from outside of australia does that ever come up in conversation do you have someone in town or yeah i had kyle hall recently um from detroit here who wanted to know about indigenous culture so i took him to tandania yeah and he was you know he had a great chat with the people there um explaining different symbols in the aboriginal artworks and things like that and you know, and he and I spoke at length about the similarities between what happened in the United States with the British and what happened here with the British as well. Mm-hmm. It, the, there are parallels. Yeah. Okay. You know. Yeah. The whole displacement. Yeah. You know that all of that kind of welfare. You know, patriarchy. Yeah. Um. Yeah, the destruction of a almost the virtual destruction of 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 culture, mm. language, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, and for those cultures, it's it's incredibly hard to recover from that. Yeah, even yeah. if it's a long time ago, it's still it's yeah. it's hard to kind of remove from that. Like you, you have people who have uh, suffered child abuse or something like that as a kid, and you just can't mm. remove that. So it's, mm. it's it's different, but it's that whole idea of the. Um, of the baggage that, get, that 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 remains, or the the, the damage that remains. Um, why why does art matter at a broad broad level? So you've, you've surrounded yourself with art. We've talked about music. We've talked about your art. Why, why does art as a a broad concept matter? Because it's mattered ever since ever since someone drew a picture on a cave, on the wall of a cave. Hmm. In a way, it's... um, And I know that there are animals that do make art, (laughs) whether it be a pig or an elephant um, or a chimpanzee, you know. um, There's something very human about making art. Um, it's it's hard to explain. It's it's something quite spiritual in a way, and I don't mean that in a in a god way or a religious way. But um, I think the urge to make art is kind of primal. Um, and you can get you know you can. You can you can find yourself drifting off to another place in your own mind when you're making art, and time seems to just race. Suddenly, you realise that you've been in the studio making a mm. painting for hours and hours, but it doesn't you know it doesn't seem like you were there for hours and hours. Mm. You suddenly look up and it's dark. You're like wow. You know, because you're, you're transported to another place in your head. Mm. Almost your meditation, is it? It's yeah. kind of a meditation, yeah, yeah very much so. Mm. Yeah, it is a, a form of meditation. Yeah. What about people that say they're, they're not creative? I'm not artistic. Oh. <laughs> it's like people say, oh, I don't like music. Yeah. I mean, how can you not like music? <laughs> you know, it's like saying, I don't like, I don't like sparklers. Mm. <laughs> You know, I don't like dancing, or yeah. you know, I mean, these are these are these are joyful things. Mm. 
Um, I just don't understand people that, that say those yeah. kind of things. I don't. I just do not understand them. I don't get get them. Is it they just have given it a go or like? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I really don't know. It's a different mindset. What What does being cool mean? So if you look around this sort of they. If you look around the house, it's kind of there's, there's elements of cool. I don't know what that means. I think the first it, thing about being cool is not giving a fuck. Yeah. I think that's the number one thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and you don't really think you're cool if you're cool. Yeah. Other people think you're cool. Yeah. You can't think that you're so cool. It's the same thing if you think, like, if, um, you can't think you're creative if you're either. It, 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 is it is it a similar thing? It, I don't I don't think so. No, no, I don't. <laughs> I think um, whether you're cool or not is something that it, that other people say yeah, about okay. you. You don't say it ever about yourself. Yeah. You know. So if someone says, "Oh, you're cool," you have to take it as a compliment, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. How do I respond to that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just take it as a compliment. Yeah. You know? yeah largely about not giving a fuck. Is that that fair? pretty much? Yeah. 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 Um, we started off with you as a young kid um, coming over from the UK um, and being different. If you were giving some advice to younger people, I don't really care if it's kids or young people young at heart or younger people, what, what's, what's the path to a successful life, a successful career? What do you think? I saw, a, I saw a fantastic um, interview with DJ Harvey in the GQ magazine, yeah. actually, and... Uh, I remember in that interview, he was um, having a discussion with his mother-in-law and he said, um, what you consider success, I consider failure. Yeah. His mum. Uh, he uh, said that to his mother-in-law. Yeah. What you consider success, I consider failure. Yeah. And that's a really interesting statement, yeah. isn't it? Mm. You know, um, But if I could say anything to, you know, someone, in fact, if I could say something to my younger self, it would be um, follow your passion um, and do what you love doing. And if you do that, I think the chances of success are extremely high. Mm. And what about, it sounds like for, for your life, you you kind of, on reflection, could probably define what your passion was because you loved art and whatever, but you didn't necessarily follow an artistic kind of route. But like, is it, it sounded like for you, it kind of was, yeah. It was, chance, played a, chance, chance played a big role. Getting the boot of the car yeah, to watch yeah. a movie and went, that sounded yeah. like a cool career, but it's, is it is it kind of almost, it sounds like, it's almost like, not expecting it all to fall into place straight away, but it's almost once you find something, you go, there's a passion in it, or you, you, it, it sounds like you... Well, you're kind you, of doing it unconsciously, you know, anyway. I was doing it unconsciously anyway, not realising that I could make a career out like of it. Like your music and... Your, music your, and your art, art yeah, you know. Yeah. Like, when I was making posters for the bands at the Austral that I was booking there, I, only, I was only doing it because I had a heap of spare time. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I wanted to create something, yeah. you know, to put up in the pub. And I wonder if it's actually kind of the, 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 
rather than thinking about your passion as going, I've got to kind of make some money out of it. It's almost going, it's a, it's a passion that you, for, for you. It's you, yeah, you, and you, it, you loved your art, you loved your yeah. music. You were just and doing the money it came you after that. And then you, someone yeah. said, Hey, do you want to come and play yeah. some music at our, yeah. at our, um, venue? And you went, Oh, can I get paid for that? Mm. <laughs> and it all it fell into place. I mean, you know, um, last year before my, just a couple of weeks before my father died, um, I supported, um, Noel Rogers and Sheik and Lionel Richie and Leo Sayer in the Botanic Park. And, you know, for my dad to see me do that from, you know, knowing that I just followed my dream, I think that made him extremely proud, you know. And I'm so glad that he got to see that before he died, you know. That's a beautiful spot to end. Thank you so much. <laughs> Pleasure. To comment on today's show, please reach out via Twitter or your favourite social media. You can find me at Jason Dunstone or Square Holes. We are also very excited to launch our new iteration of our website, squareholes.com. It includes information on our backstory since launching in 2004, including our market research services, education, offering, publishing opportunities, opportunity to join our research panel. But most importantly, we're excited about putting our content into a well-presented, easy-to-read, front-and-centre format. So... Uh, yep, so check that out. We have, I'm just looking through this, the site at the moment, so we've got highlighting some articles around humans becoming robots. So we've got one about Embrace Your Ugly and the Pratfall Effect, uh, a podcast interview by, we've talked to Philip Alvelda, The Robots Are Becoming Human, an article by Steve Sammartino on How to Not Fear the Robots. We've got some podcast interviews appearing on my homepage at the moment by Dr. Fiona Kerr about imagination and the human connection, Barry Bergen about economic and cultural impact, Michael O'Brien about Aboriginal history, community, land and sea, Philip Reedman about the world of wine, Yana Matthews about business, growth and leadership. Uh, we've got different categories of content, so culture and society, entrepreneurs and new markets, marketing, customers and brands, research theory and method. We've got some how-to guides on research and strategy, workshops, etc. Podcast interviews. We've included easy-to-access uh, links to our guest posts. Uh, there's an event there coming up. I can see we've included some free ads to the organisations that we sponsor and support, so including Helpman Academy, Zoos SA and South Start. Yeah, I think it's a bit different, so please check it out. Uh, let us know what you think and the website will continue to evolve. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Hooroo. Hooroo.